Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Now, a definitive conversation with Peter Trubowitz, professor of international relations at LSE, of course, iconic at University of Texas, and it's an important group, uh, group effort, the retreat of the West, which was timely to say the least over the past 24 uh, months. I want to take it the other way, Professor Trubowitz, and say the advance of the East. If I look at Putin and I see him, and this is a phrase from you, of the pow- power and partisanship that we can see. How much power does Mr. Putin hold and what partisanship can he look for as the East advances? I'm good to be with you. So uh, Putin holds a lot of cards and he's displaying them. He's been using them and playing them. Um, They're mostly hard power cards, uh, deploying troops, running exercises, moving his ships through the Dardanelles Straits, and so forth. He doesn't have much soft power, and there's a lot of opposition uh, in Europe to what he's doing. And the closer you get to Russia, the more opposition there is, if you're talking about in the Baltic states and obviously in, in Ukraine. I think he's gotten himself to a point now where he's, I mean, he's laid down a lot of demands And I think we're now kind of at crunch time where we're going to see whether or not he gets traction on his main demand, which is that the Ukraine not join NATO or not. I think that's where the game is right now. Right. We're in the 11th hour or whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use. There's some hopeful signs, but this could easily go south. What will you listen for from the new leader of Germany in the coming hours? I think this is a very interesting trip that he's making because first, as you know, he stopped yesterday in Kiev and had a conversation there with Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, before moving on to to Putin. I think the question here is in my what I'm looking for is whether or not Zelensky's comment yesterday about NATO being his country's desire to be part of NATO being more a dream, in quotes, than a realistic goal, is somehow the basis for private negotiations, stuff that we're just not privy to right now, and arrangements that are going on, and whether or not the announcement this morning that Russia was pulling back some of its troops is in response to that. Unclear reading tea leaves, um, but um, that's, that is where I think they, you know, the discussion and the negotiation is right now. Peter, usually it is reading tea leaves, and yet we've gotten an unprecedented amount of information from the U.S. administration in real time about what yeah. they believe to be happening. How do you read that? I think there are multiple audiences there, Lisa. Uh, it's a great question. One of them is to underscore to the Ukrainians how serious the situation is. The second is really, or maybe it should be the first, is to deter Putin. They're getting information that's coming from close to Putin, it would appear. 
and uh, and to really raise, in a sense, his understanding or the well, stakes that are involved, and that the U.S. is a, is in a sense trying to get out in front on the narrative or the information game. But I think the third thing is to try to demonstrate to the American public that it's all they're on game inside the United States. The Biden administration is managing this much more effectively than, let's say, it managed the Afghan pullout. Peter Trubowitz, to go back to George Kennan and the founding of all this, is this the new containment? Are we searching for a new Western strategy to contain the leader of Russia? Well, I think the West is searching for a strategy. I don't think that this is or primary Western states like the U.S. and Germany and U.K. and others. I don't think this is what they had imagined. But ironically, what is going on here thus far is that Putin's efforts to change the European security structure have actually, um, I think, given NATO, given the Western alliance, kind of new purpose, something it really hasn't had, as your question alludes to, since the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago. It's led to the deployment of more U.S. and other troops in, in Eastern Europe, as well as the delivery of thousands of anti-tank missiles and other weapons to the Ukraine. Putin has managed to get everybody's attention in the West, but the results are not all favorable to him. Whether or not this is what takes form as kind of on a Western collective strategy is unclear. Remember, what Joe Biden would like to be focusing on is China and East Asia. So every day that he is and his team is investing time in Europe is a day really that they're not getting the message out as much with respect to East Asia and, and China. And I say that despite the fact that the Secretary of State is in East Asia right now. But that story is buried below the fold. Professor, what a great point. This truly was a clinic and I'd love for you to come back soon so we could extend that conversation to the second chapter of this, which I believe is a discussion about China. Peter, thank you. Peter Trubowitz there of the London School of Economics. Gabriela Santos joins us, global market strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. She writes one of the clearest, most detailed notes on the street with a real sense of international affairs. Gabriela, thank you so much for joining us. I love what you say. Throw out the blueprint. Okay, brilliant. What's the, what's the replacement? What is the new blueprint that matters? Hi, Tom. Good to see you. So I think that's ultimately what we're trying to figure out this year uh, as investors, right? The market is pricing in today what's going to be a transition year for the economy from pandemic recovery to post-pandemic expansion. It's one where we have more optimism about growth, but we're also a bit more concerned about inflation. So it does mean a different withdrawal of liquidity than we had post-financial crisis. That's not the blueprint. Now we need to figure out what the new blueprint is. And I don't think investors have a clear read on that, and neither do policymakers. They're trying to figure that out real time, out loud, with several Fed speeches. Uh, and there's so many permutations we can come up with, right, in terms of rates and balance sheet, timing, pace, endpoint. 
So ultimately, we do think volatility is going to stay higher for longer. That means <clears throat> making big outsized bets on a tactical right. position is really difficult this year. Gabrielle, I know you speak four, five, six, eight languages. I mean, that's what you do at Pennsylvania. But the answer is you speak Greek. Let's go alpha beta right now. You say within investment and finance, alpha matters. What is alpha and why does it matter now? So beta is just really the the kind of return you can get just by being invested in the market. Alpha is the kind of excess return you can generate by focusing on the kinds of companies you invest in. And I think for the last 15 years or so, it's been a cycle of beta. It was all just about being invested and riding um, returns of, of indices, right? And you could have generated a six and a half percent annualized returns just from a very simple 60-40 portfolio. But going forward, because the market has recovered already so quickly uh, post-pandemic shock, we only project beta returns going forward of 4.3% annualized. So we got to work harder to generate the same returns as the last cycle. And that's where alpha comes in. You're starting to see a turn in hedge fund alpha. That could be a sign that really this is the dawn of alpha. There's a lot of valuation dispersion beneath the surface. There's a lot of value to add. Uh, by focusing on stock picking going forward. How much of the alpha, Gabriella, comes from China? So China is, is a really important piece of this puzzle because you can add alpha in Chinese markets and you can also improve the sharp ratio of a, of a portfolio by adding Chinese onshore assets. Um, so both stocks and bonds, we project it for China to have the highest uh, returns <clears throat> over the next decade, double uh, for Chinese A shares versus the U.S. and double for Chinese local currency government bonds versus uh, U.S. Treasury. So there is a lot of improvement that can happen on returns by adding Chinese assets. And you also get a diversification kicker uh, from those markets. They really beat to their own drum. You're seeing that in action this year. Gabriela Santos, thank you so much with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Mark McCormick here. Global Ahead, a foreign exchange strategy, TD Securities in Canada. Mark McCormick joins us this morning. Uh, Mark, I, I look at the continuum of your note, and it seems like it's a McCormick sea change here off of your wonderful call on dollar resiliency. Are you ready to make, as Bullard would say, a regime change call mm -hmm. in the land of McCormick? Yeah, I think we're getting closer to the top in the dollar uh, in broad terms. But I do think what's what's kind of interesting is there's still some more dollar resiliency ahead. So I know there's like kind of a big shift in the market in terms of how much expectations are going on the euro. But I still think that there's room here to trade euro from the downside. Um, so we're kind of thinking a bit about a V-shaped bounce in the euro. So we see another move maybe towards 112. We bottom out there around Fed, Fed liftoff time. And then we're basically off to the races in the back half of the year looking for kind of a revisit around 120 uh, toward the end of 2022. You do a great job on the currency wars. And the currency wars are usually ascribed to race to the bottom of weaker and weaker <laughs> currencies to boost exports. But you take it a different way. What does next year's currency wars look like? So we're basically living in it now, which is a race to the top, where essentially policymakers prefer currency strength because it's a way to limit inflationary pressures. And I think, as you mentioned, you noted Swiss franc. And that's a, that's a clear story here that the central bank, the SMB, has allowed a little bit more currency strength than more people would have anticipated. And Swiss has been much stronger than more people would have expected in this environment of higher global yields. 
largely because they're allowing the currency to do some of the work for them. So stronger currency, lower inflation. And now every central bank around the world, all policymakers actually are looking for stronger currencies. They're not telling you that, but you could see it based on what their actions and what they're doing. And the preference now is for stronger currency. Um, and that's helping to work off some of the inflationary pressures we have. Mark, in the past decade, we've really talked about rate hikes or rate cuts really dictating the moves that we've seen in currency markets, and that's shifted over the past year to a growth outlook. Over the next 12 months, do you think it's going to primarily be uh, driven by growth and not necessarily rate moves? And I point to China, for example, where you see the yuan actually strengthening despite the increased support and the potential rate cuts coming up. Yeah, it's an important question because what I, I think is most important and, and our work shows it is currencies are multidimensional. So I know we're kind of focused on central banks and geopolitics right now. But if you look at what factors have been making money the last couple of years, it's value, it's growth, and it's also terms of trade. Uh, so I do think growth is also it's, it shows in our back test. It's the most important factor through periods of time. And I think it's, it's one of the things that will matter most, especially on COVID reopenings. You know, if we're moving in a world where we have, uh, we have synchronized policies that are kind of allowing everyone to reopen, growth is gonna matter and we're gonna see growth divergence. But I think when we think about central banks, growth, commodity, terms of trade and value, and I think the, one of the most important things we have to think about are equities. But on the rate side, where we're going now, it's really about terminal rate pricing. It's kind of like the first ones in are now kind of the countries that are at a big, big disadvantage. If you look at the Canadian dollar, and the BOC started to move last year, and it's kind of one of the least exciting currencies now in the central bank trade. But there's a, a moment in time here for probably the next three to six months when we think about terminal rates and figuring out who is the highest terminal rate will help the currency. But if we step back from that growth, terms of trade and commodity exposure, equity momentum and value are the critical drivers for currencies moving through this year and probably into next year. So if we connect this, Mark, with this idea of the currency wars that you're talking about, where nations want to see stronger currencies to fight off inflation, how does this factor into the Fed's calculus? Does this actually encourage them to be a little bit more hesitant to uh, raise rates or be more aggressive in order to allow, ironically, the dollar to strengthen more because it will increase growth prospects? Well, I think part of it is they want to essentially, I wouldn't use the word shock the markets, but essentially what they want to do is kind of get ahead of expectations. And I think what we're, what U.S. is worried more so than any other country in the world is that rent and wage pressures are starting to rise faster than other countries. If you still kind of strip out your diffusion indicators for inflation in Europe, there's still definitely a focus on energy, and that's a big driver of inflation. But U.S. is starting to see um, expectations around longer term projections of inflation starting to rise, potentially at uncomfortable levels. So I think there's a component here that what the Fed's trying to do is really they got a little bit too far behind the curve. They're trying to get aggressively in front of the curve, but they're also wary mm. that growth is also slowing. So they have a moment in time here where they can hike and they can hike aggressively because they actually might be hiking into what is a very slow, uh, a slowdown in the economy next right. year. So I think they're definitely just trying to get ahead of things and anchor longer-term inflation expectations. Mark, you're going to revisit Swiss franc here. Euro Swissy, a 104.875. A 105 print would be weaker Swiss franc. We're not there yet. You've been doing this for years, Mark, watching Swiss National Bank. We talk about balance sheet dynamics in America. They own a truckload of Apple, Starbucks, and other selected equity shares. What is their vulnerability is they make a potload of money in, in, in Apple shares. I just don't understand that. 
Well, it's quite interesting, too, because it goes around with the, the global growth momentum stories. So if you think about kind of a big driver that's moving markets around, you know, what's underperforming? U.S. equities are underperforming because they are highly leveraged to growth. Growth is highly levered to real rates. And so not, not only are U.S. real rates rising now, but global real rates are rising. So the, the concern from that trade is that they're going to be owning underperforming assets. Um, and I think what's what's a very interesting is that when we think about the growth to rot uh, growth to value rotation, which I think is going to occur in equities, but it, the sequencing is too quick to trade it now because ultimately we need higher real rates, which means we need Fed terminal pricing to go up. But the concern for that moment for Swiss franc is euro offers a tremendous amount more value than the Swiss franc. And then if you kind of, again, think about the performance of the balance sheet or having exposure to those equity markets, those are going to be the equity markets that are underperforming probably over the next six months, over the next 12 months. So this is where Euro-Swiss is going to be very interesting, is that Swissy was allowed to kind of, again, control inflation uh, a little bit more than anticipated. You didn't need that from the euro. You also got, again, the yeah. balance sheets kind of leveraged these uh, global growth stocks or you know, that are leveraged real rates. But the value in the equity store is really in the euro, not in Swiss franc as we move forward. And Mark, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you don't want to answer it, you can just pretend you can't hear me. What okay. on earth is going on in Canada right now? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so in March, the central bank is going to hike rates and uh, <laughs> yeah. there's inflationary That's pressures. That's exactly and... where I was going, Mark. Go away. <laughs> Mark, thank yeah. you. Mark McCormick right. of TD Securities. Nailed Mark, that. thank you very much. Annetta Markowska joins now, Chief Financial Economist at Jefferies. Annetta, the inflation reports, plural, that we've seen signify more sustained inflation. Do you need to take a terminal rate year-end or end of first quarter 2023 and bring it up? I would say, you know, we should certainly be pricing more hikes um, into the, the curve. The question is, should we be pricing more in the next six months? And I think the answer to that, from my perspective, is no, because although inflation has you know persisted a little bit longer than expected, we have some forward-looking indicators that still suggest that within the next few months, you know, it will peak. And the fact is that we just don't know at this point how much of this will self-correct versus how much will ultimately have to be squeezed out by the Fed. But what are some um, of those points? Are those points in CPI or are they in PPI, the business inflation index? What are the tea leaves that give you confidence inflation ebbs after the two sets of data we've received? So, look, one of the things that drives inflation is product shortages. And we've clearly seen that kind of build and, and um, intensify through the course of the last year. But those supply-demand imbalances, at least in the consumer product space, actually peaked around October. Uh, November, December, imports surged tremendously at a time where demand has sort of plateaued. Uh, as a result, we've built some uh, inventories in the retail sector in particular, where inventories are at the highest level they've been since April of 2020. Uh, we're also starting to see some signs that inflation expectations on the part of consumers are rolling over. That was the case with the New York uh, Fed survey that came out yesterday. The three-year yeah. ahead inflation expectations declined pretty sharply, also to levels not seen since April of 2020. So. I think that, you know, consumers are recognizing that product shortages are not as acute as they were 
um, say in September, October, and, and it seems like that's what they're responding to. Aneta, where does inflation have to come down to make you comfortable to feel like the Fed can hike uh, less than seven times and still be complacent? I think if we see um, the month over month trajectory mm -hmm. kind of for core get down to 0.3 type readings, I think that will be enough to sort of stabilize expectations at the front end of the curve. Um, you know, when we're thinking about the, the longevity or sustainability of this tightening cycle and, and is the curve priced for enough in 23 and 24, I think that's more of a question related to the labor market and the shape of the Phillips curve. And I do think that, you know, those pressures will persist. Right now, it seems to me like the labor market is going to put a floor under inflation at around 3%, just given where we are right now in terms of wages, unit labor costs. So, um, you know, so so I do think that there is a piece of this inflation story that will have to be squeezed out by the Fed and, and probably a 2% terminal rate is not enough to do that. Um, but I just I just don't necessarily think that we need to be pricing any more than seven hike into uh, 2022. Anetta, what terminal rate is possible to keep the economy from uh, tanking? In other words, how much can the Fed hike before it curtails any kind of recovery and goes in the opposite direction? I think it really has to do with that kind of speed and, and how they distribute those hikes, right? Because if they get to the neutral rate of 250 in one year, uh, that's going to knock off a lot of, you know, from growth next year and could potentially tip us into the recession. Um, if they hike seven times this year, which is our base case and, and which is what's priced into the curve, that's going to take off just under 1% from growth momentum in 23. Um, which is obviously a sizable drag, but not enough to put us in a recession. Um, so it really depends on how quickly we get to that neutral rate. Does someone want the meeting room at Jeffrey's? <laughs> is that what the banking is? Apparently there's construction going on above there me. There we go. Anetta, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for being with us. Anetta Markowska of Jeffrey's. We appreciate it. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.